We start chapter 9 tonight. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Romans chapter 9. Paul speaking, starting in verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ. You always want to tell the truth in Christ, by the way. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason he says this is because of what he's going to say, because to the hearer, they might think, Paul, you couldn't possibly mean what you're about to say. And that's why he's saying, I'm, I'm telling the truth in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually speaking through me, my conscience bearing witness that what I'm about to write to you Romans, I actually mean from the depths of my heart. Look at verses 2 and 3 that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. If you haven't read that ever, or if you haven't thought, let that one sink in a little bit. Paul was saying, I would be okay to go to hell and be accursed from Christ that all of my brethren would be found in the Lord, that my brethren, that I would be accursed, that they, on the other hand, would be uh, found in Christ. And of course, he goes on in verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be blessed. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father, by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul takes uh, what feels, I don't know about you, but if you kind of were reading a lot, if you just started reading Romans, uh, you would actually see Israel, a few things about uh, the Jews and the law uh, certainly have been mentioned already, uh, but not what's going to take place here from chapters 9 through 11. It will seem uh, what feels like a hard turn from his previous detailed review of man's fallen condition starting in Romans 1, uh, the need for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Uh, and so the need of Christ, that, that uh, because man is uh, in sin, man is in a fallen condition, the need of Jesus Christ, he goes on to the essential saving faith required. Remember that we are saved by faith, the just will live by faith. At Abraham, it was counted unto him as faith, that he believed God. And then it went, then he goes on to the need of grace, that you know, the fact that we are saved by grace, that you can't work for it. It's not of works. And then he goes from there to the fact that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to live out the Christian life, to walk in Christ, to be sanctified. 
you know, you can't, it's not enough to just know a bunch of biblical truth. You have to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in the Spirit. If you don't, you'll fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so these are the things that he's been going through. And then he takes this turn, if you will, to Israel and addresses the condition of Israel. And not just here, but again, verse chapters 9, 10, and 11 will all deal uh, with Israel and how Israel's condition relates to everything else in God's plan. It's like, uh, you know, if you're going to understand the Bible and you read the Bible, you're going to read a lot about Israel, aren't you? From Genesis to Revelation. And so Paul here, in going through the fallen condition of man and the need for grace, the need for Christ, the need for faith, but then these chapters, these three chapters, 9 through 11, this turn of how does Israel relate to God's unfolding plan. Now, if you're writing to those that are in Rome, that are now believers in the faith, especially thinking of the Gentiles that are there, it's as if Israel is the proverbial elephant in the room. Why would I say that? Well, if you were in those days, and even still today, even still in 2013, some in Paul's day, and like I said, even, uh, even today you would still have this uh, quite frequently, some might ask the question, hey, Paul, so if God chose Israel, because it's the way, way we understand it, because these epistles are really new, and, back, and, and when, immediately when they're written, not everyone knew that they were Scripture. Now Peter confirms us that all of Paul's writings were Scripture because they were given by the Holy Spirit, and Paul mentioned the Holy Spirit again here. But when they were written, they were letters coming from an apostle, and of course the Holy Spirit confirmed that each of the epistles from Peter and James and John, that they would all be Scripture. But up until that time, you had the Tanakh, you had Genesis to Malachi. So the book of the, the, the Bible, if you will, that both Gentiles and Jews would read from would be the Tanakh. That's what they had. So they would be, especially if you're a Gentile living in Rome, uh, might ask the question, so Paul, if God chose Israel, we've been reading this whole Torah and the whole Tanakh, and we've been reading and uh, we've been hearing what God has done in the past, and if we didn't read it, uh, other people have taught it to us. So God chose Israel, he delivered them, let, let me get this straight, he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. He re-delivered them, as best I can read, again and again and again and again and again. He gave them the prophecies. He gave them the hope of the Messiah. And then he actually sent them the Messiah. Born of a virgin, just like the prophets said, just like it said in Bethlehem. He went down to Egypt, called back up out of Egypt. All these things took place. They received their Messiah. Paul, why didn't they believe? That's the elephant in the room, that the people that he would be writing to, certainly some Jewish people would understand, not understand that either. If they didn't live in Israel at the time of Christ, you know, how in the world did they crucify him? What happened? Why would they have not received the very Son of God? And they might ask, now does this nullify? Because they rejected Christ, because they put him on the cross, because Israel said, no thanks, he is not our Messiah, we're still waiting for him, does this nullify God's love for Israel, Paul? Or does it disprove the power of the gospel? That it wasn't even powerful enough to open their eyes? Or both? Or neither? Right? 
Or Paul would say, neither. It does not disprove God's love for Israel, and it does not nullify the power of the gospel. And I will write for the next three chapters why you need to understand this. That's essentially chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now, some in the body of Christ, and, I, and I, I'm not going to say even for a moment that, uh, that uh, there isn't some noteworthy theology in these chapters regarding election, because God mentions it. We talked about this last Wednesday as well. As a matter of fact, I spent a decent amount of time on it last time. Uh, but as much as that uh, people will really kind of take from a theological position and really focus in on these chapters are all about election, and, and certainly election is part of the theology here, uh, it's more about God's elective purpose for Israel than anything else. God's elective purpose for Israel. Remember, Israel didn't exist as a nation until God created them as a nation. Right? Abraham was not born Jewish. He was born in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was not himself a Jewish person by birth. God says, I will make of you a great nation. The nation is God elected and called Abraham, chose Abraham. Why not Job? Right? He was a godly man from the same part of the world, somewhat of a contemporary. Why not him? But it was Abraham. And God certainly loved Job as well. So it could have been someone else, but God used Abraham. And these three chapters, again, we'll look at over the next several weeks. And uh, just to kind of give you a preview of what we'll look at. Tonight we'll look at the call of Israel. Next week we'll look at the God of Israel. The week after that we'll look at the hope of Israel. After that, we'll look at the preservation of Israel. And then after that, we'll look at the deliverance of Israel. So again, the call of Israel, the God of Israel, the hope of Israel, the preservation of Israel, and the deliverance of Israel. But let's look at our text tonight, this first uh, portion we want to look at, this grief that Paul talks about under the grief continual. It clearly breaks Paul's heart that his countrymen are lost. And they're on their way to hell, not realizing that they're on their way to hell in many cases because they're not found in Christ. They're not in Christ. They've rejected Christ. They don't believe Christ is the Messiah. They're still waiting for the Messiah. And this is breaking Paul's heart. He can no doubt relate to their belief in the God of Abraham and their simultaneous rejection of Jesus Christ. I mean, certainly Paul can relate to that. Wouldn't you agree? That they believe in the God of Abraham, but reject God's Son. And this was certainly true of the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders that Jesus came in contact. Matter of fact, they would bring up to him Abraham or Moses or the law or their love for God, but they would not receive Christ. Now, Paul himself had been in the same place and some of his past experience, when we get to chapter 10, uh, you'll notice in the first uh, few verses that it certainly looks like Paul is drawing from his own past experience. Uh, and again, when we get in chapter 10, you'll see that. You certainly can read ahead as well. But you see in Paul the very heart of Christ and why Jesus came to die for a lost and a rebellious world. Jesus came for people that did reject him, that didn't want him, that didn't believe in him. 
And yet, we see it throughout Christ's ministry, if we look in his earthly ministry in the Gospels, he always had compassion for the multitudes. Regardless of where they were at, regardless of whether they believed in him, whether they're just looking for a free lunch, whether they really did believe in him, whether they had questions, well, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. He had compassion for them, and he wept over Jerusalem. And by the time he weeps over Jerusalem, he's fully aware that most of Jerusalem does not believe in him, does not receive him. How he longed to gather them, but they were not willing. And Paul understands that his countrymen, his relatives by blood, also are not willing to come to Christ. And it breaks his heart uh, to the point that he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief. No matter where Paul went, he always carried this burden. And yet he's called as the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. Now certainly the other apostles also uh, were witnesses to the Gentiles. But Paul's specific call, and just like Paul also was a witness to the Jewish people, he would go to synagogues. uh, And by the way, you and I are called to be witnesses to both too. Amen? (laughs) We're called to be witnesses to both Jew and Gentile. But Paul's specific calling was to the Gentiles. Sam Nadler, my good friend, his specific specific calling is to the Jew. He feels like God has called him to reach the Jewish people around the world, and yet half his church is Gentile, because he loves Gentiles too. My specific calling, for the most part, is the Gentile church, but we love when God brings and and saves Jewish believers as well. And so we have this in Paul's life where he has a specific calling, but he couldn't ever stop grieving. And of course that grieving was given to him by the Holy Spirit for his own country, for his own people. I think it's when we're saved, it's why we pray for revival every single Sunday here. And I pray for revival constantly for our nation. I have a love for my own countrymen that's near and dear, and I hope you do too. No one has to put. No one has to convince me. Well, you should really. Ha- you should really have a heart for your own nation. Now we should have a heart for the nations beyond our nation. We should have a heart for Africa, in India, in China. And I pray, as I know many of you do, for Pastor Saeed and Brother Gao and Brother Bay in North Korea and Sister Asia and Southeast and all across the country and our believers and all throughout Central Africa and the Middle East. But yet at the same time. I have a continual, because I live day by day looking in the face of our own people and our own countrymen. And Paul has this continual love for his people, Jewish people just like himself, that were blinded by their own religiosity, which we'll see more in the next couple of weeks. But his love for them, it really, uh, it really um, is beyond description. His love for the lost is extraordinary, and that would be an understatement. Without question, this comes that you could actually say, I would wish, I would be okay with, I would let God go ahead and have me be accursed if all of them would have their eyes opened the same way I did on the way to Damascus. I'd be okay with that. Would you be okay with that? I wouldn't be okay with that. 
I haven't read any other pastors, scholars, that any, I've not read anyone that said, I, 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 I'm right there with Paul. I, too, pray that prayer on a regular basis. I would be accursed that other people would come to Christ. This is so extraordinary. Matter of fact, uh, for the most part in the body of Christ, people get upset with each other for anything, much less be willing to die for them, and even beyond that, be accursed beyond death for them. This kind of, this kind of love, without question, can only come from a closeness and a relationship with Jesus that is so intimate and so drenched in the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul could actually pray it. Praise the Lord, God will never give him that request, right? We're going to see, and uh, not this Sunday because we won't get to it, but uh, we'll be in the same chapter. In, in Exodus 32, uh, you may be aware that Moses prays almost a very similar prayer. You're aware of it? Exodus chapter 32. We're going to be in the 32nd chapter this Sunday, but we won't get to uh, verses 31, 32 till the following week. But this is what Moses prays. It's the only other time. That you've got Paul in the New Testament, Moses in the Old Testament, the two that pray a very similar prayer. And Moses says, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Moses praying to God, yet now, if you will forgive their sin... But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Who prays that? These are the people that actually wanted to kill Moses, didn't like his leadership, pestered his brother into building the calf, which we'll see on Sunday. We're going to be in that. Uh, They were rebellious. They were unthankful. They were full of sin. And Moses pleads for their being saved, and just go ahead and blot me out of the book of life. Paul, go ahead and accurse me that they might be saved. That, that, can't, that can't come from your flesh. That has to be such an intimate walk with the Lord. That should be really convicting of what the love measure is in your life and my life. Amen? What is the love thermometer in our life? How much do we love other people? What does it take for you to still love a person even if they're unlovable? I mean, Paul's talking about people that would beat him, that would put him on a ship and send him to Rome, that would actually throw him in jail. We're talking about people that hated him. Moses has people that, again, won't listen to him, don't like him, don't want to follow him, and and don't want to follow God either. And yet both these men with this intimate relationship with the Lord, then have the same kind of compassion and desire that Jesus exhibited going to the cross. Now let's remember, though, whatever the love meter in our life is, whatever the thermometer really looks like, what God looks at you or me, and and God knows everyone's heart. He knows how mature you really are. He knows where your love stops where you can be pushed, I go no further than right here. As far as I go. I don't yield any more than that. Uh, I give people exactly this line. This is the line in the sand I make. It's about three inches long. I go that far. 
all the way to being accursed is at, you know, at the other, way at the other end of the spectrum, right? That I would actually be able to pray that prayer, mean it, and God knows the level that we're really at. I mean, we're supposed to be growing in love. I, I should be able to have more love for the lost, more love for people than I did a year ago, 10 years ago, the longer I'm walking with the Lord. But our, clo- uh, our closeness, remember, Paul and Moses, the reason they could pray this is because of the closeness they were with God. They started to act. Really, the Bible tells us we have the mind of Christ. They started to really speak with the selflessness. Remember, that's one of the characteristics of Jesus, is he's selfless. To have that kind of selflessness, you can't manufacture it. You can only absorb it hanging out at the feet of Jesus. It's the only place. And then the Holy Spirit is changing and radically changing. You know, Moses used to, Moses one time, he had a temper. If you got Moses mad, he killed a man. That's Moses. Paul said before he was saved, he was a violent man. If you're still here and you have violence or any kind of violent tendencies and everything else, you don't have the love of Christ. Because Paul was radically changed. Moses was radically radically changed. They used to be men of high tempers, men of violence, men that didn't love, men that actually would get somebody and put them in their place. And instead... They're on their backs or their hands crying out saying, I have continual grief, Lord. But this kind of relationship, this kind of heart uh, that we would have with Christ, our relationship with Christ and our heart for the lost, whatever that may be, is based entirely on us and our obedience and surrender of our will. Now, God will change us radically that comes from him. But we pray for revival. Let me get another example. We pray for revival. We pray for revival all the time because we know revival comes from God down upon an outpouring of man. But revival is dependent upon a group of people that are yielded in prayer and truly seeking God and drawing near to him. Now, I shouldn't say... I, I, no. To be clear, God can also pour out revival if nobody's praying at all. So there's no limitation here. But what I'm saying for us individually, just like Moses, just like Paul, the reason they could actually have this kind of love is because the more yielded they were, the more loving they become. The more loving they become, the more burden they are for people. The more burden they are for people, the Holy Spirit just keeps filling them up to the point that they could pray a prayer that's outside of themselves. And God says... I love the prayer, but I would never blot your name out, Moses or Paul, but keep loving people that way, and I will do a great and mighty work through you. Jesus said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that desire to be like Jesus and to follow his footsteps, to be fishers of men. That's, of course, what he called all of us to be. If you're here on Sunday, again, that's one of the uh, three characteristics we looked at as a eternally minded dad, but to be fishers of men, Paul certainly was. He wasn't just a fisher of men, he was a prayer of men, praying for them, grieving for them, desiring that they come to Christ. Great men and women of faith. If you look in, you know, I love to read history. 
I learned so much. I'm encouraged and strengthened by believers that went before us. Not just the believers that are cataloged in the Scriptures for us, but also believers as I read, whether it's Hudson Taylor or George Mueller or Amy Carmichael or D.L. Moody or F.B. Meyer, R.A. Torrey, you go on and on, A.W. Tozer, all of these believers, every single one of them, when I read about their lives, and this is true today of our brothers and sisters that are... Uh, you know, being martyred for the faith even now, when I read about their lives, great men and women of the faith, they begged for, I mean they begged for conformity of Christ in their life. Do you? Or does that say, I, I haven't even prayed that prayer, ever, to be conformed to Christ. Now, I, I beg God to help me have a pretty good week. Well, I don't beg him, I just say, hey, help me have a good week. There's no depth to that, folks. You know what I'm saying? There's no depth there. That's not, that's, not, that's not the relationship of someone intimate with Christ. Think about an intimate relationship with a husband and wife. There is depth. It's not, uh, I read the paper facing this way, you read the paper that way, and then every now and then we talk about the funnies, and then that's the end of our day. There's depth. They would pray, the great women and men in faith, they would pray for the conformity of Christ in their life. They would pray for the power and the overflow of the Holy Spirit, to be drenched by the Holy Spirit, sometimes agonizing for it. And they would pray and they would agonize that God would give them converts. Listen to this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said, I remember when I have preached at different times in the country, and sometimes here, in this place, that my soul has agonized over men. Every nerve of my body has been strained. I could have wept my very being out of my eyes and carried my whole frame away in a flood of tears if I could but win souls. They would have that kind of desire. Now, Spurgeon didn't attain to the love that Paul did, that he could actually pray. And, I, and let me be accursed that the people of London would come to Christ. But you can see that the meter had been moved from wherever he started. I don't know what we know what his love meter looked like at the beginning, but that he at the place that he could agonize every nerve, a flood of tears, if he could just but win souls. While I'm on Spurgeon, I'll give you a couple more that just kind of speak to the opposite of what God wants to see in our life. Uh, here's another one from Spurgeon. God save us from living in comfort while sinners are sinking into hell. How about that one? God save us from living in comfort while sinners are sinking into hell. I mentioned that you know, it's, uh, it takes some work, even what we did on Saturday as an outreach, to go to Bon Air. It seems like every time we go, someone, if not everyone's under some sort of just attack, if it's just tired alone. Here's another one from Spurgeon. I might as well make it three. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Hey, I didn't say it. Charles Spurgeon said it. It's taken up with him. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. See, God will give us a desire that we would want to see people come to know the Lord. It's his desire, and it becomes our desire that they would come to know Christ. Let's look at this uh, next section, glory given. Verse 4, these are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. 
to whom the fathers, whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. This is the elephant in the room I, I started off talking about. Paul's basically headed off the path saying, if, if you're aware of these things, so am I. If you're aware, how is it, Paul, that my Jewish neighbor here in Rome thinks I am a nutcase for following this Messiah because they're telling me, and this would have been not uncommon, a Jewish person in the Mediterranean might would say to a Gentile, why would you believe in that man? He was a rabble rouser. He was, uh, he was a fake. He was a fraud. The, pre- the high priest condemned him to death because he considered himself to be God. And then they would read the scriptures and say, but it seems like, seems like he might have been the Messiah. We believe in him. Notice Paul begins by referencing the Israelites to those to whom pertain the adoption now, when we come to Christ, we're adopted into His Son, into the body of Christ. We're adopted as His sons, Ephesians 1.5 tells us, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Paul even mentioned the same thing back in the 8th chapter. Uh, chapter 8, verse 15, For you did not receive the bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So, uh, just in the sense that no one is born of God, we have to be born again, adopted into his family. God, everyone in the family of God is adopted, meaning that every little baby born is born in sin. They're naturally estranged from God, and God has to adopt them through the blood of Christ. When, when we believe by faith in Jesus Christ, we ask Him to be our Lord and Savior, we repent and turn from our sins, then we're adopted into Christ. But for the Jew, they believed that they all were the sons of God by blood birth. The rest of you Gentiles out there, uh, if you are willing to submit to Judaism, which you could, you could submit to Judaism and come and be circumcised, and and then uh, you could be adopted in, if you will. But not like Paul, an Israelite of Israelites, right? Circumcised, uh, you know, tribe of Benjamin, all these things. And he was born an Israelite. And he would talk about that, of course, as well. The notion here that all of Israel is adopted, as Paul's saying, look, it goes all the way back to Abraham was not born a Jewish person. God adopted him, and by inference, everyone is under adoption, even the household of Israel. God has adopted specifically the fact that there was no Jewish race. God adopted a race by creating one. He adopts a man and all of his descendants, at least by blood, they're adopted into this nationality And then when this nation is established, and as you know, we've been going through the book of Exodus, God establishes the nation. They actually grow mighty in the land of Egypt. God brings them out, gives them all these things that Paul mentioned, gives them glory. The nations knew about the Red Sea. Everyone knew that the Egyptians gave them all their gold, the Shekinah glory that would actually uh, uh, be in the presence of the Holy of Holies and the, the a uh, pillar of fire and the cloud by day and all the miracles, all the glorious miracles of Israel. 
that God had saved them many, many times. And all the nations around there knew of the glory of God in their presence, the covenants. They were given the covenants and the giving of the law. They were given the Ten Commandments that were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant, the testimony, the service of God and the priesthood, the promises, all of these things. And then, and then to top it all off, as he says in verse 5, and then Christ came from the household of Abraham through the line of Judah, through the line of David, born to Mary, and both Mary and Joseph, again, both of the family of David, and Christ comes forth, him being of the seed of Isaac himself. And all this has been given, and Paul says, I know, this is all the more distressing, (laughs) if you will, that God has given all these things to my brethren, to my countrymen, and yet they still have rejected. It is difficult to understand. How could they be given all these things? Romans 3, 2, he said, to them were committed the oracles of God. Israel was given, Israel was given the full blessing of God to actually then pass it on to their children and to their children and their children. But not only that, that they would actually call the Gentile nations to Jerusalem and proclaim the truth of God and that everyone would follow the Lord. But that is, of course, not what takes place. Many of the kings of Israel chose idolatry, walked away, and of course by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they crucify him and actually prefer Barabbas over Christ. And yet they were given all of these things. It's sad. It's, it reminds me of um, kind of similar is if your family, you know, I, don't, I shudder to even say, I won't even say here, but we've seen in, in history you know, families that raised all their kids to serve the Lord, and one of the kids says, I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't want any part of it. It's hard, isn't it? Some of you have, or in, in our experience in that, to say, you were given all these truths, and you still say, not convinced. And even worse, some of those, some of those uh, in history have, been, have gone on to be some of the most staunch atheists and even haters of the gospel, which is exactly what takes place uh, with some in Israel and certainly in the world today. There's quite a few Jewish atheists that don't believe any of this stuff. I've witnessed to some that have told me, you know, I'm Jewish culturally and bloodline only, but then I'm like, how could you even be that? That would mean you would have to, it would be a figment of your imagination that Abraham even existed. You can't even be the blood, you, how can you be blood Jewish? And actually, you would have to say that if you're blood Jewish, then this is the historical context, but yet they still would reject all these. And Paul's like, I know, I get it. Why it troubles me? Why I'm such grief about it? They've been given all this glory, but Paul's like, going to tell us anyway, in his other epistles, not here, but, but he did the same. That he would actually kill Christians, that he would hunt them down, but he too was blinded, and he does talk about that uh, in chapter 10, the fact that they have this zeal, but not according to genuine knowledge, not knowledge according to the Spirit of God, knowledge according to man, traditions of men, the priest, the rabbi said this, and this is still what we have today. All this has been given And it is 
When you talk to Jewish people even today and you realize uh, you can talk to them. Sam, t- Sam has given me a lot of coaching about how not to over-intimidate uh, Jewish people who don't know their Bibles, and usually they do not. You, most of you, even if you don't study the Bible as much as you perhaps want to, should have, or you haven't been saved that long, you still probably will know a lot more than the average Jewish person, even though it's been given all these things to them. The household of Israel given these things, but yet at the same time not receiving them. It goes on to verse 6. We look at this, uh, the final thing this evening, genuine sons. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Paul, if that's a wonderful thing to know. So often what we do for the Lord seems to take no effect. But God's word never returns void, does it? The wheels of God are always turning, whether we can see it, whether we can sense it. God, God is working on people sometimes that would blow your mind, and mine too which is why we can never, we can never um, be so fearful of situations and man, because fear of man is a snare, to not just be his witness wherever we go. You never know what God is doing. The Word of God has taken, but it's not that the Word of God has taken no effect. The Word of God always takes an effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Not everyone. Yes, they're of the bloodline of Israel. Israel, of course, was Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And Israel and his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, everyone comes through that line. If you're Jewish, you come from one of these tribes, you all trace back to Israel. But yes, You can be of the bloodline of Israel, but God's desire when he's talking to Abraham about his his descendants is that they would have, the true sons of Israel would have the same faith as Abraham. That's what you and I have. We have the same faith as Abraham. And so we are the sons and daughters of of Abraham. We're grafted in. We're going to look more at the grafting into the olive tree when we get to the 11th chapter. This bringing in. But not everyone. Just because you're born of the household of Israel doesn't mean that you really are one of God's sons. Because that's the prevailing thought among many of the Jewish people that Paul would run into. I don't need what you're offering. I'm born of the household of Israel. I'm one of Abraham's sons. I don't need your Messiah. I don't need any of that stuff. I go to synagogue. Paul would say, well, technically, yes, you and me are both Jewish bloodline, but you're not one of the sons of Israel. You're not. Of course, that doesn't go over real well sometimes with people, does it? If Paul would explain this, it would get him stoned or thrown out or literally thrown on his head. doesn't go over real well. Jesus didn't go over real well when Jesus would tell him, oh, you're actually sons of the devil. You know, because they thought of themselves as, you know, we, we're, we're, we're like you know, presto copies of Moses. Of course, 
none of them would be accursed for people. Matter of fact, uh, if they had that kind of love, they wouldn't put Jesus on the cross now, would they? But not everyone is of Israel just because they are Jewish by blood. Chuck Smith says, one meaning of the name of Israel is governed by God. Paul says here that not all Israel is really governed by God. See, you can't be governed by God and reject his son. I've met people that have told me that. I've met, I remember one time I was witnessing to uh, two people that were Roman Catholic from Brazil. They told me definitively, well, we believe in God, we just don't believe in Jesus. I said, well, you can't believe in God. I mean, you can believe he exists, but you can't really believe in him. You can't have saving faith in him throughout his son. Jesus says he is the way. And Chuck says, did God's word fail? No. Instead, they are not all governed by God who are of Israel. Some, yes, they're in Israel, they're an Israelite, but they're not governed by God. Therefore, they're not the true sons and seed of Israel. Paul tells us that no one, no one is truly Israel unless he's governed by God. You've got to be governed by God. Uh, Chuck also goes on to say that not all people, it's the same in the church. There's a lot of people in a church. That doesn't mean everyone is really a Christian just because they say they're a Christian. We call this Calvary Chapel of Richmond. It's a church. There's lots of Calvary chapels. There's lots of Bible-believing churches that are not Calvary chapels. And within all of them are people that call themselves Christian, but they're not all of Christ. Jesus said that he will someday take the wheat and the tare, and, he, and he'll actually divide the two. And we have to be careful as believers and pastors that we don't rip up uh, both together. We continue to sow the seeds of the Word of God and teach the Word of God, and God will convict the hearts. But not everyone who names the name of Christ is actually a believer either. Just like not everyone of Israel is really governed by God and really under God's authority. Someone here, some people here, you may not really be under God's authority. You really may still be on the throne of your own heart. Only God knows. Matthew 7, 22 and 23, he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It'll be just as surprising, just what shouldn't be surprising, I don't think it'll be surprising or shocking, it shouldn't be, but people that didn't, yield to Christ and truly repent and ask Him to be the Lord and Savior and turn from their sins, that Jesus will say, no, no, no. I know you named my name. You told people that you were a Christian, but you really weren't in me. And many in Israel, again, deceived by the fact that, hey, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm born of the household of Israel. Me and God, you know, we... we, we we go way back, all the way back to Abraham. We're all covered as long as we're born, and it's not enough to name something. You have to actually be in the spiritual household of Abraham. Paul demonstrates this 
by pointing out that merely being the descendant of Abraham, it doesn't save anyone, just being his descendant. We know this is true. Isaac was one of Abraham's sons, but he had another son named Ishmael, didn't he? Ishmael was Abraham's son. But he didn't follow Abraham's God. Did you know that? Everyone knows that, right? Ishmael was not, he didn't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He went a different way. He was not the son of promise, he was the son of the bondwoman. And we also have here, also to understand, we talk about Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. God had a special purpose for the nation state of Jacob, also known as Israel. He had a different purpose for the nation state of Edom. By the way, Esau had a pretty good life and had opportunity to come to the Lord and give his life wholly unto the Lord. He chose not to. But ultimately, God had chosen Jacob to be the nation, to be the continuation of Isaac and Abraham. That they, Jacob would be the one that would have the sons that would be the 12 tribes. And for whatever reason, which God doesn't have to give us all of his reasons, and we certainly don't know all of his reasons, he chose Jacob, turns him from deceiver to the prince of the Lord, one governed by God, again, that name Israel, and of his choosing Jacob is chosen, but Jacob even still, even though God chose him, we talked about last week between election and free will, the two are always on parallel tracks. Does God choose me or did I say yes to the Lord? Yes. God absolutely is in charge sovereignly of the election of nations, of people, of families, of Abraham being chosen, of Noah being used in the flood. Whatever the case may be, God is sovereignly in control, but yet at the same time, right there will always be genuine free will in those that want to be a genuine son or daughter of God. Genuine free will. Because there was a time, if you remember, that Jacob didn't want to follow God either. You know what I'm talking about? He was a deceiver. But then at one point, God breaks him down, and he ends up wrestling with God until he cries out, please, please. He basically has an all-night weeping in prayer. And God says, I'll change him. I'm going to jack up your hip socket for the rest of your life. As a constant reminder, that took you a long time to repent and give your life fully over to me. And if you and I aren't careful, if we really are a genuine son... I think Jacob had already given his life to the Lord prior to that, uh, but it, early on in his life, he was a deceiver, clearly was estranged from the Lord, at least apparently to me. And at some point, probably living in Haran, he gives his life to the Lord, and then he finally yields when God says, all right, I'm going to make it so it's important to you and I that we actually give our lives fully to God right now before he tweaks your entire hip socket or something else. Amen? That he wants us to be whom the Lord loves. He chastens the genuine sons of God. He's going to bring them into full obedience unto him. And that's a real blessing uh, that he does this. And we'll come to a close now. But um, I think that as we look at the next couple of weeks, it's important to understand that God 
uses Israel's failures, uh, Israel's blessings, uh, those that um, have done great things for the Lord. All through the Scriptures, God uses Israel still even because God is sovereign. Because He's sovereign, even in their rebellion. Remember, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter, uh, what is it? Uh, well, I won't quote the chapter, but it's at the very end there. Uh, even Joseph's brothers, they hated their brother without cause, right? And their rebellion, God still turned it completely around, and Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He turned the whole thing around. And God has always taken even Israel's sins and rebellion and somehow, some way, as only God can do, he somehow turns it and brings and draws more in through the process. And we'll see that Paul is going to make the case that all the things that Israel has done, yet God never wanted them to run from him, rebel from him, that Paul says, just be patient. Don't lose any of the faith in the Messiah that you have come to. Instead, understand that God understands the panoramic view and he will take all of Israel, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he'll actually work it to this end state that will be beautiful beyond our comprehension. Amen?